0: Welcome back to the TV podcast on the Comparable. We're starting a new rewatch podcast tonight, this time for the 1999 to 2004 sci fi series, Farscape. We're going to be covering every single episode the good, the bad, and yes, the ugly. Each podcast will cover two episodes, and schedules willing, we'll be releasing a new episode every other week. I'll be your host tonight, Eric Scott. And joining me is my fellow escaped convict, Jason Johnson.
1: Hello, everybody.
0: All right, some quick background on Farscape. Uh, It was an Australian-American joint production series produced originally for the Nine Network in Australia. And it aired here in the U.S. on the Sci-Fi Channel from 1999 until 2002. So that was four seasons, each 22 episodes long. Uh, Then it was canceled on a nice annoying cliffhanger and then they managed to actually get the rights back and wrapped it up with the Peacekeeper Wars two-part miniseries in 2004. So before we get started, just wanna give everybody a little important note on what we found out when we started watching. Uh, For this rewatch, uh, please use the episode order on Wikipedia, at least for season one, as apparently we found out that the episode order on Amazon Prime is using the air date, not the production date. So that can cause some kind of uh, like out-of-sync experiences where some characters reference stuff that hasn't happened yet if you watch the Amazon order. Uh, so for example, today we're doing Seasons 1, Episodes 1 and 2, according to the Wikipedia production order. But if you're watching Amazon, you'd be watching Episodes 1 and 7. So that's a slight difference. So we'll try to add that Wikipedia link to the show notes, or you can just go to Wikipedia, look up Farscape, and go to the Season 1 episode list all right enough administrative trivia. down to some fun jason uh how did you get involved with farscape uh, when did you start watching it how much did you watch et cetera, et cetera?
1: so farscape is one of those fun shows that i actually completely missed I-, I knew about it you know it was in the periphery uh sci-fi community all that kind of stuff but at the time it aired i had no access to any of the um channels where it aired there wasn't obviously pre- internet access and all that kind of stuff so uh at least in the middle of nowhere where i live so i actually completely missed it other than just kind of being aware of it and wishing i could watch it um i remember you know i think it it, you know it was one of the first ones i can remember outside of the star treks to to have um some of the the puppets and stuff that the muppets puppets i don't know what we call the uh farscape aliens (laughs) but um i guess we'd have to defer to uh maybe one of the other podcasts on muppets to know but uh you know, so I completely missed some of the uh, the airing of it, but it's always been one of the shows that I've wanted to rewatch and just never found the time. So completely new to me as we go through it.
0: Yeah, and I'm kind of a hybrid of that. I knew it was on TV because we had Sci-Fi Channel back then. I think I was just recently married at the time, so I wasn't really interested or we had other things to do, obviously, than watch TV. So I don't think I started watching it until late season two, maybe. And I'd not sure if they're doing reruns back then so i may have just just kept going with season two and just kind of figured it out and just followed along as it went and then I, I watched the whole rest of you know seasons two three and four uh i was really mad like i said before when they ended it on a cliffhanger like a la blake seven if you know that show where it ends and you're like is everybody alive is everybody dead what's going on i hate this it's canceled and then two years later you know they uh, came out with that peacekeeper war miniseries and wrapped up the whole thing and to a nice, happy ending.
1: Yeah, I tend to be a, a completionist, so the fact that I couldn't start at the beginning was one of the the reasons that I just kind of stayed away from it, because if I can't, I figure if I missed it, I've already missed it, and I just kind of move on. So uh, I, I'm glad to be able to go back to the beginning and work from there. Yeah,
0: because I'd started rewatching this, I don't know, a year or two ago. Uh, well, I think I watched the first couple episodes, probably the Amazon order, and you know I was maybe confused in the beginning uh but then we stopped for other things because you know the next shiny tv series comes on and you stop watching the old stuff watch the new stuff uh so yeah so i'm anxious to see what i've missed since i don't think i've seen everything before i started watching you know 20 years ago or whatever so this will be fun yeah all right here we go uh let's recap uh we'll recap the first episode talk about it uh didn't do the same thing for the second episode so we begin obviously with season one episode one entitled premiere we open on earth iasa astronaut commander john Crichton and his best friend dk are about to test their theory that a spacecraft can overcome atmospheric friction to exponentially increase its speed using only a planet's national gravitational pull that's basically a long-winded way of saying it's a more better slingshot maneuver i guess Uh, On his way to the space shuttle, carrying his Farscape-1 spacecraft, we meet John's father and former astronaut Jack Crichton. Jack gives his son a puzzle ring, originally given to him for good luck by cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin, and he tells John that he will get the chance to be his own kind of hero. The Farscape-1 launch goes as normal. However, during a critical moment, Mission Control detects some kind of electromagnetic electromagnetic wave approaching Farscape-1. It hits the ship and sends it through a wormhole to somewhere else when Crichton finally regains his wits he sees that he's nowhere near earth and in the middle of a pursuit between several small ships and a much larger ship farscape one is clipped by one of the smaller ships which spins out of control and crashes into an asteroid then farscape one is pulled inside the large ship's hangar bay inside the hangar a small drone appears outside of farscape one's canopy startling john just then a fire breaks out inside his ship john grabs his fire extinguisher leaves the ship and puts out the fire. And then two more drones appear and force John to march through the ship to what looks like a large command center with two aliens standing there. The large male warrior-like alien grabs Crichton by the throat, lifting him off his feet Darth Vader style, and speaks something in a strange language, while another alien, a bald blue female, looks on. John is injected by one of the drones and can now suddenly understand the alien's language. Hey, that's pretty convenient. That takes care of several sci-fi plot devices right there. They tell him that they only brought him on board because of his ship and his technology that they think they can use to help escape their attacking ships. Since he's pretty much choking Crichton to death and getting nowhere, the large warrior throws Crichton across the deck. The warrior demands then help from a third alien he calls Pilot who appears on a view screen. Pilot says he can't help while the ship's control collar remains in place. As the warrior starts yanking at tubes beneath the control panel, I guess to try to free the ship, we meet yet another alien a small frog-like alien on a hover chair who tells John that he'll look after him now if John will look after him later. Whatever that means. And, well, the warrior's random destruction seems to work as the control collar on the ship is released. The warrior then yells for something called a starburst. Blue energy builds up on the hull, and the ship, whose name we learn is Moya, flies into the tunnel that that creates in space and disappears, but not before taking one of the smaller attacking ships with them. Meanwhile, on the bridge of the carrier ship that the fighters came from, we meet Captain Kreis, who learns that two of his fighters are missing. One of those fighters was piloted by his brother, and yeah, you guessed it, that's the one that clipped Crichton's ship and was destroyed. He vows that the pilot of that ship will pay for his brother's death. Back on board Moya, they aren't sure where Moya starbursts to. Uh, during their arguing about it, the warrior knocks Kreiton out by striking him with his really, really long tongue. Ugh. And then we learn more about our aliens. All of them were apparently prisoners. The blue alien is Pao Zoto a Delvian priest, imprisoned for anarchy. The large warrior is Ka Dargo, a Luxon, imprisoned for killing his commanding officer. And the frog-like alien is Rigel, the 16th a dominar of over 600 billion hundred or so he says. His throne was usurped by his cousin, and he was imprisoned. Uh, Crichton wakes up naked in, his, uh, in a cell on board Moya. Rigel's outside and tells him that his clothes were removed so they could examine him. John finds some clothes to put on in the cell and sees that there's another person in there with him. The Prowler pilot, Moya Starburst, took long. John introduces himself to his cellmate, uh, who promptly kicks his butt, <laughs> pins him to the floor, and demands to know his rank and regiment. We learn that she is Officer Aaron Soon, a peacekeeper. Later, the handcuffed Crichton and Aaron are being fed by their captors. Uh, Zahn explains that Moya is a living, organic ship, but can't travel fast because of the damage Dargo caused when he tried to release Moya's control collar. And that they're on their way to a commerce planet for supplies to help fix moya when the aliens go down to the planet john and aaron escape their cell and they also go down to the planet in aaron's prowler and on the surface aaron transmits their location to captain kreis's ship when Dargo learns that john and aaron have escaped and that a peacekeeper command carrier is approaching the planet he tells zon they have to leave uh, aaron and john see moya's transport pod flying away and when they try to get back to Aaron's ship, Dargo appears in front of them. John tries to warn Dargo about the command carrier, but just then, Captain Kreis shows up with several of his armed soldiers. Kreis uh, interrogates Creighton and accuses him of murdering his brother, but Aaron, surprisingly, comes to his defense, uh, saying she doesn't believe John intentionally murdered Kreis' brother. Kreis then accuses Aaron of being irreversibly contaminated from spending time with John, and all three of them are handcuffed and taken away. One of the peacekeeper soldiers searches John and discovers the ring given to him way back in Act 1. Uh, Crichton explains it's a puzzle, and while the soldier is playing with it, John steals the soldier's gun and demands the keys to the handcuffs. John insists that Aaron also come with them, as he apparently is no longer a peacekeeper in good standing. Once they all get back on Moya, uh, Krace's command carrier is closing on them real fast. Uh, they can't starburst again because Moya's energy reserves are too low then john has the bright idea and explains his slingshot maneuver to the crew they don't they seem kind of skeptical but dargo persuades aaron to give it a shot and pilot moya as Crichton instructs her on what to do so kind of like in act one uh this time uh aaron pilots moya into the atmosphere increasing their velocity until john tells her to pull up and then moya flies away at an incredible speed far too fast for kris's command carrier to catch up Later, Crichton is alone on Moya, uh, repairing the drone that he damaged earlier when he first arrived on Moya. He's recording a message to his father, and it talks about the weird, amazing, psychotic life he's encountered. And Crichton says that he'll never stop trying to find his way back home. Uh, I guess before we get into some discussion topics, uh, just found a couple of little uh, trivia tidbits online. Um, apparently Crichton was going to be a NASA astronaut but NASA uh, wanted script approval for the use of their logos, so NASA became the IASA, which I guess stands for the International Aeronautics and Space Administration.
1: You know, that's generic, so it works. You know,
0: <laughs> and the, and the logo looks almost identical, so it's just got you know I instead of N. So I guess that passed copyright and <laughs> infringing <laughs> that's right. things. Uh, also, even on the Amazon um, episode list or order, uh, this is the only episode uh, where there's no voiceover during the credits, which you'll hear on episode two. And uh, a couple of things I found interesting about the uh, the two Muppets, puppets, whatever you wanna call them, uh, was that the pilot, uh, the character of the Muppet pilot was a really large puppet, about six to eight feet tall. Uh, his head was like three feet deep and two feet wide. And it was apparently the most sophisticated puppet ever built by, at that time by the Henson Creature Shop.
1: And, that was before Elmo, right? Yeah. I, well, I
0: don't know. But. <laughs> <laughs> or at least not as popular as Elmo. Yeah. And uh, apparently you would think being that big, it would be controlled by a lot of people. But it was entirely computer controlled and allowed uh, only a single puppeteer to handle it. Conversely, Rigel, on the other hand, was animated by at least four puppeteers. Uh, John Eccleston, the main puppeteer, who does the voice also, did the head with one hand and then had like a control on his belt to do the lip syncing with the uh, lips with his other hand. And then we had another puppeteer doing his facial expressions and eye movements and another puppeteer working each hand. So teamwork. <laughs> yep. Lots of teamwork. It takes a village to front a puppet, I guess. Yep. All right. So what do you think about episode one?
1: uh i i thought it was a a typical kind of introduction episode i I will give them credit for skipping a lot of the crew introduction and throwing you right in uh it makes for a little bit of a confusing um mechanism because you're still struggling to keep up uh and it was you know for for an intro it was a one-parter right we didn't get like a multi-part introduction it was just one episode and go um so that was that was an interesting it, it took me a while and actually a couple watches to catch all the names and kind of figure out what everybody was supposed to be uh he, actually while we were watching it, my son even looked over at me and goes what is pilot because you know we were kind of confused as to his function i mean not function obviously that's in the name but you know is he supposed to be part of the ship is he a separate person who stays there we, you don't really kind of get a lot of information about some of the characters um but you know again points for you know not spending two episodes on earth before they actually launch into space you just kind of get it and go so
0: yeah i mean it was pretty much like you know yeah here's earth yeah he's it's right creighton comes from you know that's not the important part of the show let's get on get in space let's get to the other side of the universe and you know go from there
1: yeah i did find it interesting that they even spent time on some of the characters right like you know they, they made a point of having his best friend be the other one who came up with the the experiment with him when that character could have just kind of been combined with his father and, and completely sidestepped but they they wanted to kind of flesh it out even more, even though the character was there for a few minutes. And then once the, the shuttle took off and they he flew through the wormhole in the first few minutes, it's done. So
0: yeah, and even like on the ship, we had that I don't know, chair moving, plot moving, you know, part where they you know all the characters explain to each other, oh yeah, I'm an escape prisoner too, and you know my name is this, and here's why I'm here, here's why I'm a prisoner. I, I killed my commanding officer. Oh, I'm an anarchist. Oh, you know, I'm a former ruler. You know, so they kind of jammed every character into like a three minute scene you know exposition
1: yeah we just need little badges this says hello my name is you know but again yeah. <laughs> points points for moving the plot along and actually showing more action unless uh you know they told us but they told us quickly so
0: yeah yeah i'm kind of glad they didn't explain either like the Crichton's version of the slingshot maneuver other than like i guess the only difference is from a normal go around the planet and build up speed is you're going through the atmosphere and somehow building up speed but whatever I, you know I don't need like tech to tech, you know, heavy science like Star Trek, you know, techno babble. Just, you know, we're on Earth. We got to get him out to outer space somewhere. Let's just, you know, get him right there as soon as we can. Yeah. And, and just and half, ha- half explain it so it makes kind of sense.
1: And as a as a child of the 80s, I'm always happy to see space shuttle footage, even if it's stock footage, you know, it just kind of brings me back. So.
0: And I guess I'm, I'm sure we'll see Crichton's father later because, um, you know, you got like a, well, to me, a big name actor, you know Kent McCord, uh, playing Crichton's father. Uh, I remember Kent from Adam 12, growing up in the 70s, and uh, I even had Adam 12 lunchbox among other lunchboxes back in grade school. So, I'm assuming, and plus, because Crichton's recording, you know, notes to him or something, that I'm assuming he's going to show up later.
1: Yeah, kind of kind of a precursor to the Iron Man recording into his helmet kind of thing from modern <clears throat> time. But you know, it's good to see the the traditional cassette recorder. I will say that that's one of the things I would have liked to have seen them spend time on at the beginning is setting up his relationship with his dad a little more. I mean, we get kind of a walk down the the tunnel to the ship, you know, as he's walking him out scene. But, you know, they could have set up a little more interaction between the two of them since that may be a, a plot device going forward is him talking to his dad and all that. But again, yeah, economy yeah. of time. So.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's not the real focus. So you have to move on. But they did try to set it up at least where it's kind of like his dad was an astronaut he was on the he walked on the moon you know i guess he was a big name so Crichton kind of feels like he's in the shadow like he keeps he, not i guess not not getting the prop you know the recognition he deserves but the, more like you know, i guess he has to try probably try harder because you know he's the son of the great you know jack Crichton.
1: And, and they set it up as you know his dad was the traditional probably military officer who became an astronaut kind of warrior astronaut and Crichton's well yeah, you know, John Crichton is more of our um, scientist, explorer, peaceful type character. So it kind of brings him in as not being a warrior, right? He didn't come in with military experience or anything. At least that's the assumption.
0: Yeah, I mean they don't make a, a deal out of it. It's more like he's he's a scientist, and he and his friend thought up this theory, and they're out there testing it. He just he's, so he's not the military astronaut. He's just like a civilian astronaut, right? Yeah. And um, another kind of thing I liked, where you know, apart from uh, like the babble ish you know just get that out of the way and go half across the universe. Uh, the other, the trope they kind of get away with is, uh, the universal translator. So, you know, Crichton gets injected by some microbes from one of those little drones and suddenly can understand everybody, you know, very like Babelfish like.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it skips the, let me pull out my translator and type in what you said or have it listen to you. And, and we just kind of gloss that over one quick injection and we move on. So.
0: Yeah, or just assume that everybody somehow can understand each other and we don't talk about it. Yeah. Uh I'm sure they'll they'll, they'll talk about this again either, but at least we know if you watch the first episode, okay, this is how everybody understands each other. Let's just move on.
1: Yeah. English is the common language of the space. You know, it's no big deal. Exactly.
0: (laughs) All right. So this is the first episode. Like we said before, you know, we got, you know, plot dump, character dump. So what do we kind of think about so far anyway? Each of our main characters. I know you kind of talked about Crichton a little bit, but what's your initial impressions about Crichton?
1: Yeah, I mean, like you said, it, it, it's it's. An, I think they, they went out of their way to point out he's the scientist, he's not the fighter. Um, you know, th- there wasn't a lot of chance for him to do any of that other than the, the science experiment stuff at the end where he, he maps out his um, solution, which, you know, we're going to gloss over the, loss, the the lack of actual variables. I mean, he didn't really know the the atmosphere backup or the, the size and mass of the planet or anything fun. We'll just assume Moya could tell him all that. Um, but yeah, I think they, they you know, have set him up to be a, a, a proxy for the audience without knowing what's going on and, and all the fun stuff. So yeah, mm-hmm. again, we'll, we'll see where we go from here.
0: Yeah, I mean, he's kind of like the, in one way, like the, the the smart-alecky, way over his head, but, you know, by luck or moxie or whatever, he, he just kind of gets us, gets through everything. Uh, kind of, you know, more, more lucky than skillful. Yeah, except for the the math,
1: you know. He's skillful yeah. at
0: math. <laughs> yeah. Huh. We are told to be no math, right? So Yeah. Well, not in this show,
1: evidently. <laughs> yeah, right.
0: And uh, Dargo uh, kind of comes off, at least right now, as like your, your typical warrior mentality, uh, kind of like if we're comparing to the other big show at the time, Star Trek, uh, then Dargo is basically Worf. Uh, and I guess you can kind of equate Luxon's maybe to Klingon's. You know, he's got that warrior mentality, uh, maybe honorable, definitely quick to anger, a good fighter, sort of. I mean, he does get captured, but, you know, he does get
1: free eventually. Yeah, I mean, not to the, not the spoil episode two, but he's two for two so far. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> but um yeah you know i think you got they wanted to have their their warrior i think it's kind of neat to, to have him you know when when they're doing their backstory exposition you know they discover that he's or they discuss the fact that he's very young and only been on what two campaigns or something so mm-hmm. you know while he's he's obviously a, a warrior race he's not necessarily the the senior expert from the warrior race so um it kind of gives him a chance to hopefully play with you know inexperience as well as his confidence
0: yeah he, he's still young brash probably thinks he's invulnerable like most young people and that'll probably get him in some trouble and probably some good stories later yeah zahn uh didn't really have too much to do in the first episode the second one we'll get into she does quite a lot um but kind of one of the things that happened in the first episode where she was working on one of the consoles they kind of speeded up the footage like she's like got super speed or something i wasn't quite sure what that is i guess maybe we'll see more of that fleshed out later
1: yeah and and again you know really short introductions on these characters you know she's an anarchist uh anarchist leader actually i think is how she terms it but uh you know again i'm not really sure what that means in in her world um i, I kept kind of flashing on her to being kind of like uh an aura from firefly right you know the the kind of mystical uh, uh religious aspect to her that, that they kind of played up in Anara is, is very reminiscent to what I saw in her character. So.
0: Yeah. As we learned in the second episode, yeah. Well, you know, she does have some priestly abilities or skills that you know, like mystical in nature. Right. Right. And Rigel, again, the first episode and don't really learn much about him other than, and I, I guess being royalty or if that's a Dominar's I guess if he's like a kind of analog to a king, I guess he has that kind of like aloof, kind of superior attitude. I guess he's trying to schmooze Crichton for some reason. Like you know, if you watch after me, I'll watch after you. Uh, like he's trying to like basically be everybody's buddy and you know get everybody's good side so that nobody, I guess, you know, stomps on him because he's probably the little, you know, littlest guy on the ship, right?
1: Yeah, and then, of course, the warning at the very end where he, he wants to, to take some of Crichton's equipment and, you know, ask him, you know, are you a light sleeper? So he's obviously feels entitled to whatever he feels like he wants, you know, has that kind of royalty mentality to him. Um, again, uh, also seems to be, you know, as he's trying to conditional for this time period, the, the comic relief character, right? You know, he's the, the one that just kind of floats around and, and they can interject into any Any scenes. I don't know if I'd call him an Orko, but you know, something along those lines. And then we get to,
0: you know, pilot, which is probably, I guess the least, at least in the first episode, the least used character kind of not much to him yet. Uh, Just kind of, you know, obviously he's the pilot, you know, helps fly Moya and basically, you know, is updating the crew all the time on what's going on.
1: Yeah. This was one where I I would like a little more, uh, hopefully we'll get a little more explanation, you know, is it, is it, is his race kind of always have a symbiotic relationship with um, the ships or do they, do they, um, you know, is he special or is it just the fact that he's in there? You know, it, it seems like they use him, especially since he communicates through the screens almost as a, as an analog a living analog for a ship's computer from Star Trek, or maybe even an astromech, right. Where it's, he's kind of the interface to Moya, but you know, we don't actually get him out and do anything. He just kind of stays in plugged in all the time
0: yeah because it seems like he's more like either like empathetic or, or telepathic with moya because obviously moya is not speaking and not saying anything but he's interpreting or saying what she's feeling or what she's seeing or something
1: like that so it'd
0: be it could be interesting if they explore that more
1: and, and that's why i was saying he may maybe because it a symbiotic relationship because i mean is he like you know he doesn't seem to leave the room so i'm guessing he is connected somehow
0: and i guess rounding out the final member of the crew is uh aaron who at least in this first episode, obviously didn't start out being part of the crew. She wasn't an escape prisoner like the rest of them. Did a pretty good job of not wanting to be a part of them and wanting to escape, get away. Even after um, Crace had said, you know, she's irreversibly contaminated. And I think Dargo at one point said, that's like, you know, a death sentence or something. That she still wanted to stay behind. Like it's her duty. Like, you know, she's very, it sounds like she's very, almost like uh, Dargo, like, you know, honor, duty, you know, wants to serve, you know, even to, you know, her death, apparently.
1: Yeah. And, you know, they, they obviously, aside from Crichton, I think she got the most character, I don't want to say development, but fleshing out in this episode, right? They, they had to spend a lot of time explaining why she would need to be part of the crew and, and willing to turn her back on her people. Um, so, the, you know, she, she was a, uh, more fully explained in, I think this episode, the, uh other interesting thing is that they made her human or human-like you know she's not a a person in costume she's not a puppet so she gets to be the human analog that that Crichton relates to and and I don't know if if they're going as far as attracted to but definitely kind of you know is is more uh, compatible with just because of you know feeling like he's got another quote human to interact with
0: and even back when they first, you know, introduced it to each other in the cell, where she's asking him like for his rank and regiment, like she thinks that he's also like a peacekeeper. So I don't know if everyone that looks like them in that side of the world, that that universe, are all peacekeepers. Are they all part of that same organization? And there's no civilians, or is it just because he had like a uniform-looking thing on? Well, I guess no, he didn't. He had just normal clothes on. So yeah, she just assumed he must have been someone else like her.
1: Right. So it'll be interesting where they take that from there. And then finally,
0: I guess we get our our big bad, at least for this episode, probably for the season, uh, given that uh, "quote unquote" Crichton killed his brother. As uh, a uh, Captain Crace, kind of seems like your typical, I don't want to say evil mustache-twirling commander, but you know he's got that like arrogant authority. He's like sometimes berating his staff. Sometimes they seem afraid of him. Sometimes they don't. And kind of seems like, at least in this episode anyway, he's going against his orders by going after Moya and to capture his brother's killer. So I don't know if that's going to have any repercussions later. You know, if we see more of Peacekeeper Authority or more Peacekeeper ships other than this one, you know, we'll see.
1: Yeah, I think a lot of that's going to depend on how big they make the, the Peacekeeper, you know, army, right? Is it is it a large, you know... Unit and he's just got one small ship out of it or is he is he a pretty high ranking and therefore he'll have less repercussions and can go off on his own that'll that'll be an interesting thing that you know to see i i almost picture him as the the analog for the uh the colonel in uh a team who's constantly tracking them down you know they're going to bounce from place to place doing good and and interacting with locals and he's going to be one step behind them you know giving chase and and motivating the plot so um It'll be kind of interesting if they can have, you know, chase scenes and flip a couple of Jeeps, we'll be in good shape. <laughs>
0: right. And I guess now that they're off in these, uh, what, uncharted territories, I think they call it or uncharted region, that apparently these peacekeepers don't have much of a presence out there. So yeah, now if he's gone totally rogue and is chasing after Crichton way outside his jurisdiction, yeah, that could be interesting.
1: Yep. All right. And that brings us to episode two of season one, uh, titled I.E.T., Uh, We we start out on board Moya as a loud siren is going off all over the ship. Uh, Pilot eventually neutralizes the noise, uh, but clarifies that he's only dampened the noise that the the beacon is still going off. Aaron identifies the siren as uh, a beacon that was installed on Moya during her captivity, which is broadcasting the location to any peacekeeper ship nearby. John suggests that they can reduce the beacon's range by submerging it in water. Uh, And by it, the entire ship, right? The, uh, there's a nearby planet they passed that fits the bill. Um, Pilot clarifies that it's risky, but Moya's willing to try. Uh, I believe there's actually a reference to the fact that, some, that he tells some story about another uh, Leviathan possibly trying this maneuver, but uh, it's only a story. They're not really sure if it'll work. Uh, they land on the planet, but uh, it's, a, it's actually not just water. It's a watery bog, uh, and Moya begins sinking in the mud. The beacon temporarily uh, handled, the crew turns to how to remove it from Moya's primary neural nexus. Rigel is the only one small enough to get into the section where it is. Uh, There's a a restriction and security thing to keep the uh, little droid robots from actually getting in there. Uh, Pilot says the removal will cause Moya great pain and she may even die. Uh, They discuss the situation and discover that there's a common anesthetic called Chlorium that would help dull Moya's pain, but there's none currently on the ship because it's one of the few cargoes that they're not allowed to transport. John, Dargo, and Aaron leave Moya and go to track down some of it on the planet. John, said, as they kind of explore the planet, John re- says that the planet, planet re- reminds him of Louisiana or possibly Dagobah and kind of makes a Yoda reference to Aaron, who completely misses it. Uh, using a tracking device to follow the chlorium, they run some locals who probably saw or heard the ship land and have come to investigate. Dargo and Aaron lead the locals away so John can continue the search. After a while, he discovers a barn next to a huge antenna array. In the barn, he discovers fertilizer that gives up a strong chlorium reading. He contacts the others, but hears someone approaching. Uh, John hides as a young boy enters the barn. The boy, uh, an unspecified alien, uh, spots John quickly, and John introduces himself. The boy boy says his name is Fostro, but he then runs away uh, when John tells him he's from outer space. Crichton runs into the boy's house after him and Fostro shoots him with a large one-light device that paralyzes him. Fostro's mother shows up and is surprised to see an alien from outer space lying on her kitchen floor. The paralysis wears off, and Crichton explains who he is. The mother is scared and tries to leave, but Crichton bluffs her uh, to get them to stay. Back on the ship, Moya's pain is getting worse. Zahn decides they can't wait for the others and persuades Wajil to help. Zahn will use some of her priestly skills to help share Moya's pain. This is kind of the the priestly abilities we kind of hinted to earlier in hopes that that will give Rigel enough time to remove the beacon. Back in the house, John explains to the mother, Linnea, what he's looking for and tells her he understands what she must be going through meeting someone from another planet. Linnea makes breakfast while explaining that she works for the military who funds her search for extraterrestrial life. John will be a great prize, but she's concerned how the military would treat him. Uh, while she's uh, making, serving the food, Crichton's analyzer goes off, which freaks her and Foster out. John scans the food and finds there's chlorium in the breakfast. He tracks it to a large can in the kitchen and asks what's in it. Just then, they hear vehicles approaching. The military has shown up. Foster hides John in his room. On Moya, Rigel keeps cutting the beacon free, but it causes Moya intense pain and Zahn passes out. Pilot calls and says the water and atmospheric pressure is getting too much for Moya. Linnea does her best to convince the military that she's still checking her data about where the spaceship landed and doesn't know where it is yet. Uh, the military leaves the house for now. Aaron returns to Moya, and Rigel wants to leave, but Pilot refuses. Zahn says Rigel needs to keep removing the beacon, but he doesn't want to. Aaron tries to grab him, and he bites her arm. Zahn realizes Rigel is afraid, and he confesses that he doesn't know what he's doing, as he had always had servants to do everything for him. Meanwhile... Crichton is explaining wormholes to Linnea who understands the theory, being a fellow scientist. She helps John contact Pilot using her communication gear. Then Foster comes in saying the military caught an alien outside. Crichton looks out the window and sees Dargo surrounded. Dargo is tied up in the barn and Linnea gets mad at John and demands to know what kind of ship he was on. He says that while he's a scientist, the others were prisoners. Linnea gives him a sack of chlorium and tells him to leave, but he won't go without Dargo. Linnea shows the military commander the recording of Pilot talking to John and gives him false coordinates, which causes the military to, most of the military to leave, giving Fostro a chance to distract the guards, and John sneak up behind them and knock them out with a shovel, freeing Dargo. John thanks Linnea and kisses her goodbye, which apparently is a cust- isn't a custom on their planet. Fostro shakes Dargo's hand and says goodbye. Back on Moya, Rigel finally finishes cutting the beacon free. John and Dargo arrive and Aaron tells Pilot to take off. But Pilot can't because Moya is still in too much pain. John arrives just in time to give Rigel the Chlorium and uh, they spread it on Moya's wounds. He even eats some of it. Because why not? The Chlorium works and Pilot takes Moya back into space. Aaron finds John watching the planet through a window and asks if he's going to miss that rock. Not that rock, John answers, meaning possibly something else he's leaving behind. A couple of trivia items from this episode. Um, there's, a, there's a point where Aaron says crap instead of dren, which is one of the only times that Earth words were unintentionally spoken by non-human characters within the series. Uh, on the set, the char- actors would often use real words when rehearsing a scene. And another interesting fact is, despite not having the uh, translator microbes injected into them, the uh, population of the planet uh, is evidently able to understand Crichton and the rest of the crew. This came up as a question in the pilot's log, which was something that sci-fi channel kept during the series run. And according to pilot in the log, the planet must have had contact with other worlds because the soil contained translator microbes, enabling the natives to understand the crew of Moya. So Eric, what'd you think of this episode?
0: Uh,
1: I guess good and bad.
0: I mean, it's, it's a, it's a good second episode, you know, they kind of build off what, uh, happened in the first episode. Uh, you know, the crew is still trying to figure each other out, but kind of the the plot, I, I like some of the plot, which we'll talk about in a minute, but then others, it's kind of like, it's like the kind of like the old trope of like, you know, of course, aliens land in the middle of a swamp and there's like, you know, country bumpkins out hunting for them and, you know, with with their guns and their dogs and, but then the yeah, rest it of seemed, it made it, it more sense like a after really... that
1: part, but. Yeah, it seemed like a really quick uh, jump to me to, uh, for a second episode, to to right away throw them into a, a place that, uh, you know, uh, an un-technological society, right? I mean, here, we, you, from our point of view, we finally made it into space. We've got a, a bunch of aliens. We've got, you know, spaceships and all this kind of stuff. And immediately they throw us into a, a an alien race that, you know, basically this is first contact, right? They're, this is their first interaction with, quote, aliens. So... It, it, it seemed really quick in a run to do that like you said it did kind of flow plot wise from the previous episode on them needing supplies and trying to figure out you know how to how to escape and all the things that are going on as part of their escape but it, it, it just seemed really quick in a run to, in my opinion to jump to the the un- un-technological alien civilization
0: yeah and apparently you know everybody understands each other even on this planet that supposedly has had no contact with alien life before and and no one would have known this even with that you know note that they did on the sci-fi channel
1: so it's just yeah okay whatever yeah you know, i'll 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 hand wave that one away just because yeah it's almost like they forgot and assumed that the microbes allowed everybody to to speak the native language not just understand you know it's it's it just kind of glossed that point over and moved on
0: I mean, the, the the better parts of this episode, besides the over, you know, the overall plot, notwithstanding, was basically you know getting more character development, especially this time around with Zahn and Rigel, who, as we said before in the first episode, almost had nothing really to do. So at least this time, they were kind of you know integral to the, I guess you want to call it the B plot on Moya. Zahn's revealed that you know she's got these mystical powers where she can she can't dull people's pains or creatures' pains, but she can, like, share it. Which I guess being, like, you know, if she shares it, you know, then she's taking some of it, some of it away, more or less, and helping Moya kind of get through the pain as, as Rigel's, you know, cutting out the beacon from her, uh, you know, neural nexus there.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. I think that that it's a good point that while they didn't get a whole lot of development, it was more the other characters in, in episode one. Zahn and Rigel both get a good amount of, of character time in this episode with with... Zon, I, th- I think this is where my, my my relation to her and Inara as kind of the priestly role came from. And Rigel gets the great line about, he always had servants to do this for him. So now he's having to, to learn to function on his own and uh, give himself some development as well. And that just kind of leaves, you know, uh, I've already lost his name, Dargo, as just, you know, his character development is he can get caught. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Yeah, which I guess does kind of prove that Dargo is the new Worf because, you know, every episode of Star Trek, Worf basically gets his butt kicked by everybody. You know, aliens, when Troy got possessed by an alien, she beat him up. So basically anybody can beat up Worf. So far, yeah, Rigel, um,
1: Dargo's like, yeah, 0 for 2 on the uh, big, tough warrior department. I I will mention, since we're talking about Dargo, that one of my favorite uh, scenes from this was the scene where uh, he and Aaron are, are kind of observing and just kind of hold up and due to the fact that this show's old enough to be in 4-3 it's filming the characters are basically like sitting on top of each other in the in the tree or whatever they were supposed to be in which i thought was pretty funny because you've got these warrior tough characters and they're basically sitting in each other's lap yeah hiding from uh strange locals and their dogs or
0: hounds or whatever they were yeah, everybody's a hunting dog man that's right, even out in the middle of the swamp in the middle of nowhere, on the foreign planet. Where else would you keep your hunting dogs but the swamp? That's right. Now, one of the things that I, I guess it, it, was, it was good but confusing is obviously Fostro and, and Linnea are having the same kind of experiences that Creighton just had how many days, hours minutes ago where all he's known is just humankind, only people on their own planet, and suddenly he's In the middle of all these aliens so she's got the same thing going where you know finally her her dreams come true there's a you know an alien from another planet right in front of her you know she can talk to him she can see him you know she can learn from him maybe and yeah just kind of it's a good parallel that basically everything that john probably has experienced or has been feeling for the last couple of months or
1: weeks he can now find someone he can relate to yeah and and of course they did it on a planet that reminded him of home with a character who was a scientist like him, and and experiencing aliens for the first time like him, and just just was a, almost a complete mirror image of his life, except for she what, didn't go into space. She was searching from the planet, but almost you know, and a wonder one analog of, of his current situation. Yeah, I and mean, pretty much they're like
0: at the same kind of technology level as Earth, and apart from just the sets looking like a normal barn, a normal house, a normal kitchen. They take uh, him to, a, you know, Foster's bedroom, which looks like a normal kid's bedroom. So yeah, he's basically surrounded by, yeah, that feeling of home. I don't know if he was getting kind of homesick or if he was just... Yeah. Or Dagobah, take on. your pick. Yeah, or Dagobah, <laughs> at least the swamp part, right? <laughs> but the part that kind of confused me at the end was when he, like, I don't know how long he was on the planet, a couple hours, maybe, I don't know, but he seems to have this, I don't know if it's like a relationship with Linnea or something where like when when they're leaving, he kisses her on the cheek. And she like looks shocked, and he's like, "Oh, I guess you don't do that here." But so I'm just trying to figure out: is it was she like a love? Was he like in love with her, or just sorry to leave? You know, these these feelings of home or something. I I couldn't quite figure it out.
1: Yeah, I think I think I'm going to chalk that up to homesickness, right? I mean, he, he he's it's his first planet that reminds him of home. It's his second planet total, but it's his first one that reminds him of home, and a, a civilization that reminds him of home, and a person that reminds him of home. So I, I'm giving, giving them credit for this is just a, a homesick episode and uh, you know, we'll move on. Cause you know, I, again, I, I kind of mentioned it when I said that was, she was, Aaron was the only other character that they made a human analog looking person. And I kind of get the feeling that she's supposed to be the, the long-term love interest on the show as it goes on. But yeah, uh, you know, I guess they wanted to give John a Captain Kirk moment on the planet first and introduce him to a couple aliens and then let him go off. I'm not really sure uh what they were going for there but um you know i'll I'll go with the homesick angle and move on i think yeah and i guess you know yeah being the like you said the lead of the show it's nice for him to have his moment and he gets to relate this you know some people who are not i mean he does encounter the military but you know they're not peacekeepers they're not shooting at him in space it's they're they're not on a uh, death hunt to hunt him down because he killed their brother so he gets he gets a little bit of time to to interact with other aliens
0: yeah although to linnea's point though like if she did get did turn him over to the military, you know, what would they have done with him? Probably the same thing that Crace had said he wanted to do to Crichton, like, you know, examine him, like dissect him, learn what makes him tick, which that's your typical military movie TV reaction to
1: aliens, right? Well, and the title of the episode was IET, so we get our E.T., reference there too
0: you have an episode full of aliens landing on a foreign
1: planet trope no no Reese's Pieces though I was disappointed no Reese's Pieces
0: yeah although apparently that chlorine must taste really good um it's they use it for baking um uh, Rachel just eats it raw I mean must be some good you know it's also an anesthesia it's, it's like the old uh Saturday Night Live skit uh, where it's there it's a it's a floor wax it's a dessert topping no it's both yeah, multi-purpose also kind of like that Rigel's kind of getting the reputation, I guess, of being like a glutton. You know, he was eating a lot on the first episode when they're eating dinner. Uh, he's, you know, now he's like wolfing down random cargo like <laughs> that they bring on board the ship
1: well, for anesthesia.
0: Well, and, you know, suddenly he's like, oh, it's not, this, this
1: This smells great. Let me eat some of it. I don't, mean, I don't want, It's anesthesia. But hey, maybe it tastes great. I don't know. He, he was pretty clear in that first episode when they were looking for supplies that he needed something to make the food taste good. So, you know, maybe he found it. <laughs>
0: Yeah, you know, always gotta, you know, carry your special seasoning with you whenever wherever you go, right? So. That's right. All right. Any final comments before we wrap up this inaugural episode?
1: No, I mean, like I say, for, for, for our first two episodes, you get a little bit about what you expect. I, I'm definitely in to see where we go from here. It's it's definitely a product of its time, right? I mean and and trust me, I'm I'm in it for that time. I, I, I am fondly remembering that time. But it's it's very nineties, early two thousands show. Um and you get the good with that, and the bad, uh, the the tropes that that come into play in these shows, but also you know uh, good characters and good good actors. So I'm I'm enjoying to see where we go from here. Yeah, I, mean, I pretty much agree. You know, it's you know it's now
0: what 21 years old, 22 years old. So it does kind of show it a little bit, but you know for first couple episodes you know the first one obviously they have to you know start moving all the chairs introducing you to everybody kind of large cast and you know you kind of gotta be scared by the little moment in the beginning the second episode i mean apart from the, the overall plot which is not that great it was more you know you get more character development you get to learn more about the characters to get you more engaged in the show which is obviously their goal because they want you to keep watching right so yeah i'm pretty much excited to see where this goes to you know fill in my gaps with this first season maybe season and a half of Farscape, you know, see what I missed and then see where it kind of built into when I started watching it. Cause I, you know, I missed all that backstory, all that world building, all that character development, you know, the characters gelling, getting to know each other and all that. So yeah, I'm
1: anxious to see where this goes in the next several months, years, as we do this. <laughs> Let's see how long it goes. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> about at a time, about at a time. So it yeah. looks like, looks like next we've got uh season one, episode three, Exodus from Genesis and season one episode four thrown for a loss yep and remember that's the wikipedia
0: order not the amazon order which i think on amazon it's episodes two and three not three and four that's, just make a note of that so we don't watch the wrong thing next time
1: that's good at least we don't have to go like eight two or something you know we get we get to, to go back to a somewhat normal order for the next two episodes anyway
0: <laughs> yep all right so until next time that's your homework uh, episodes three and four cool. see you next time